Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 337th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is brought to you by Bad Education on HBO. Inspired by true events, Bad Education follows Frank Tassone and Pam Gluckin, who reign over a popular Long Island school district on the verge of the nation's top spot until an embezzlement scheme surfaces. Deemed by IndieWire as a, quote, diabolically smart American crime story, close quote, Bad Education is Emmy eligible for outstanding television movie and in all other categories. And now down to business. My guest today is one of the all-time greatest documentary filmmakers and filmmakers overall. The tremendous volume, consistent excellence, and significant cultural penetration of his work is really second to none. Highlighted by the PBS event docuseries The Civil War from 1990, Baseball from 1994, Jazz from 2000, The War from 2007, The Vietnam War from 2017, and most recently, Country Music from 2019. But don't take my word for it. According to NPR, he is, quote, our great explainer, television's finest illustrator, a filmmaker who gives us what we know from fresh angles so that we can learn more and appreciate on a different level. He has made an art of divining what most Americans know about a subject and then putting an arm around our collective shoulder and murmuring, yes, but have you seen this? Close quote. The Baltimore Sun, meanwhile, asserts, quote, no one in nonfiction filmmaking combines visuals, music, and scripted and spoken words the way he does. His genius, rivaling that of any filmmaker in any genre, is to tell us something about ourselves and our collective past that is at once familiar and profound, close quote. The Guardian says he is, quote, America's premier documentary filmmaker, close quote. New York Magazine goes with, quote, the country's historian in residence, close quote. The Los Angeles Times says he is, quote, the nation's foremost telestorian and has redrawn the architecture of historical documentaries on TV, close quote. The New York Times calls him, quote, arguably the most successful documentary filmmaker of his generation and an American institution, close quote. And the late historian Stephen Ambrose said, quote, more Americans get their history from him than any other source, close quote. A Peabody Award and Lincoln Prize winner, he has also won five of the 15 Emmys and two of the three Grammys for which he has been nominated, and he has been nominated for two Oscars as well. And in 2008, he was the recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award at the News and Documentary Emmys, beginning his acceptance speech with a self-aware line for the ages, quote, thank you, I have a brief nine-part response, close quote. I'm talking, of course, about the great Ken Burns. Over the course of our conversation, the 66-year-old and I discussed how tragedy during his childhood may have fueled his adult passion for, in a sense, quote, waking the dead, close quote. How, during his time at Hampshire College, he developed his method of panning a camera across static photographs in order to make them feel more alive, something that came to be known as the Ken Burns effect when Steve Jobs began offering it as an Apple software option. Why he and his collaborators wound up living and basing their Florentine Films production company, which they established in 1976, not in Los Angeles or New York, but in Walpole, New Hampshire, of all places. 
How, when he was just 37, his first docuseries, The Civil War, aired over five consecutive nights in September of 1990 and proved an absolute phenomenon that changed the trajectory of his life and career thereafter. How race has been a thread through all of his work, from 1981's The Brooklyn Bridge through country music, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Ken, thank you so much for doing this. It's great to have you on our podcast. And uh, I guess before I dive into the usual stuff, I want to ask how you are doing during this weird time. And also, I want to take advantage of having you here during this weird time to ask you pandemic, recession, racial tensions, uh, a president who's a little off the wall. Is there anything in American history that uh, you would like in this moment, too? Not really. I mean, it's got aspects. There have been pandemics before, and I think we've, we spend way too much time focusing on the Spanish flu, which actually we believe, epidemiologists believe, originated in France. Not enough time on 18th century pandemics when smallpox or cholera would rip through a, a, a frontier or even a traditional city, uh, or in the 17th century when a French or an English trader would go into an Indian village and there would be 95% of them killed by whatever new European disease their uh, their immune systems weren't accustomed to. Of course, the depression is the only measurable economic thing. Race has been central to who we are. And in fact, I think the opportunities here for this to actually be more than lip service have to do, strangely enough, with COVID. That is to say, the fact that we have suspended, for the most part, our lives has also permitted these demonstrations to be sustained and for people to begin to take notice because in some ways, instead of having all of our million self-interests, there's a bit of us that are all connected by our disconnection. And all of this uh, makes for unprecedented times that do have you know, one or two feet in another sort of event. And because we like to, we've not found uh, a better metaphor for fighting diseases than a war and a battle and things like that. I wish we could we liken it. So to me, this COVID has immediately taken this place alongside the three great crises in American history, making it the fourth. The, for the three are the Civil War, the Great Depression, and World War II. This is it. You know, this is yeah. a big existential moment. We are living through history. We don't know how it's going to be, how long it's going to last, how virulent uh, it will be, whether there'll be any effective treatment, whether there'll be an effective vaccine, how often we'll have to do this. There's a huge number of unknowns. And as you point out, because the leadership has been so abysmal, we struggle for the things that Americans normally struggle for, which is a sense of description of their cohesion. You know, I've made my films about for more than 40 years about the U.S., but I've also made them about us, yes. that lowercase two-letter plural pronoun along with we and our. And I've had the great good fortune to inhabit that space between us and the U.S., the sort of intimacy of the former and the majesty and the complexity and the contradiction and even the controversy of the latter. So what's happening is happening in that realm. I am fortunate 
I am a well-to-do white male. I live in a rural town in New Hampshire. I have nature outside my door. I walk miles and miles each day. I've gotten into writing some poetry that's been published. I'm working harder than I ever have. I have two girls, uh, small girls at home, sent home from boarding school and arrested uh, third grade, now rising fourth grader. I'm cooking, I'm cleaning, I'm running laundry. I'm being humbled by all of those chores as a single person without help. And I'm working on eight films. Uh, four wow. of them are in the editing room, four are in production. So there's a lot of writing and a lot of arrested shooting going on with a back four, but still collection of archives and still writing and, and other work that's going on. But three are in the editing room. So I'm spending my weekends, normally time off, screening things. Mm-hmm. And then we're Zooming all week to work on these uh, four projects, uh, Ernest Hemingway, Muhammad Ali, The Holocaust in the United States and Benjamin Franklin. All couldn't be more different from one another, but all of them engaging some of the themes, if not all of the themes I just brought up. And and that's kind of been my life, which is, it's too much to say I make the same film over and over again, but I'm asking the same question with each film. The subject's always different. There's a intersection, subjects cross and recross. We're doing the Holocaust in the U.S. because of our World War II film, because of that film, because of that film, because of the Roosevelt's film, and just too many questions people have asked us, too many assumptions people have made, too many erroneous uh, facts they've adopted, and, and it's time to sort of tell them more complex, and it's not going to be a very pretty picture. That's I can't wait. That's fascinating. So, all right, now let's let's uh, zoom in, zero in, uh, or do the 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 Ken Burns, uh, yeah, the Ken Burns over. <laughs> yeah, over to you specifically. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born at Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn, New York. My mother worked as a technician. She had a, a, a master's degree in biology, so she got a job while my father was in graduate school at Columbia University in anthropology. So I came home to the Upper West Side, to Morningside Heights, but I have traded shamelessly on the fact that for three or however many days my mom was there, I was born in Brooklyn. And it's so interesting because my two grown daughters and my grandchildren live, or they should be living, in Brooklyn. And I have not spent another night since July of 1953 (laughs) in Brooklyn. I have a -a pied-à-terre in lower Manhattan. I walk over the Brooklyn Bridge to see them all the time, and fate has conspired. My father was an anthropologist. That's the operative thing. My mother developed cancer very early on and died just short of my 12th birthday when I was 11. He had already moved from the the University of Delaware, where he taught for eight years, to the University of Michigan, where she died. And so I divide my growing up between two and 10 in Newark, Delaware, not Newark, Newark, Delaware, where the university is, and in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where the University of Michigan is. And then I moved east to college. Well, for for reasons that you've just alluded to, you you have said that you, quote, didn't have a childhood, close quote, that as far as you can remember, this was hovering in the background, what was going on with your mom. And in fact, she was, I guess she lived a lot longer than you had thought she would, which probably is is doesn't make things any easier where it's just always there. So, yeah, yeah no, it's right. I, I think that's a little bit simplified to say I didn't have a childhood. I can remember 
falling in the creek and catching snakes and turtles and fishing and hiding in the woods all day and catching this and that, frogs and birthday parties and played baseball. But no, hanging over everything was this sort of Damocles. And I knew that there was something wrong from the earliest consciousness, two, three, four years old. When I was seven, our parents sat us down and said she wasn't expected to live six months. And that really intensified the the anxiety and the drama and the worry. And, and in fact, she pulled me aside and said, no, I'll see you to junior high, which, you know, at that point meant seventh grade. She missed it by three months, which is a testament to her extraordinary courage. Um, but it was a really, really tough situation. And meanwhile, you know, your father, while you've said he was the smartest person you ever met, had his own issues, right? Yeah, my brother, my brother said it really well. He said, my younger brother, Rick, who's a filmmaker too, and a really, really good one, and a very smart person, much smarter than I am, he, he just said, you know, my dad was like a Maserati without a clutch. You know, you can sit there looking really great in the driveway. You can even go rum, rum. But he really couldn't do it. He never finished his dissertation for a variety of excuses, my mother's illness, any number of things. Published or perished, you know, perished out of Michigan. Maybe was bipolar. We just don't know. It's hard to and, and too simplistic to, to make these kinds of posthumous uh, diagnoses, um, but it was really hard. So there was, you know, in some ways, uh, I was orphaned when my father passed away way too early in 2001, just after 9-11. But in some ways, we were orphaned when my mother left. I came across a letter that she had written to her mother-in-law, my father's mother, who she, she was very close to, and we were very close to, a remarkable woman. And she said, what's going to happen to my boys when I die? Because she had no faith that my father could do it. But, you know, we're here. He did it. We're okay. And I count my father as an anthropologist, an amateur, still photographer. My first memory is of him building when two and a half, the stud walls of a masonite darkroom in the basement of our tract house in Newark, Delaware. And the next memory, the next little piece of film clip is being held in his right arm while he's manipulating the tongs in the eerie red light. And out of a piece of paper is coming a still image. And it was him who, after my mom died, for me, forgave my curfew. If there was a movie on TV or at the Cinema Guild or at the Campus Theater, which was the first theater built after World War II in the United States, it showed, you know, French New Wave stuff. And I saw my dad cry for the first time. We were watching Sir Carol Reed's Odd Man Out. And my dad hadn't cried when my mom was sick. And he didn't cry when she died. And he didn't cry at the funeral. Friends had pointed this out. And there he was crying. And I just, I was, I think I turned 12. Oh yeah, definitely turned 12. So maybe 12 and a half. And I remember going, this is what I want to be. I get it. There was something that provided him safe haven. So that meant in 65 or 66, whenever this was, that I had decided to become Alfred Hitchcock or John Ford or <laughs> Howard Hawks. And, yes. um, that was what I, that was the sort of the pole star I was heading to being a Hollywood, uh, a director. Yeah. And the focus shifted to, uh, nonfiction. I want to ask you though, I, I read something that I thought was fascinating preparing for this, where I believe it was your late father-in-law, a psychologist who sort of cracked the, cracked the case for you. So 
you know, set aside the, the change to documentary. I had a real crisis uh, in the early 90s, and he was incredibly helpful to me. And I said to him, I seem to be keeping my mother alive because my dad in his infinite enigmaticness never got the ashes from the funeral home. And so there was no there there. There was, and, and, and it was a repressed memory. I never thought of that there wasn't a graveyard to go to or an urn on the, on the mantelpiece. It just, it didn't happen. And so it wasn't repressed. It was just didn't exist. And so when I woke up to this, I was trying to figure out what actions to take. And my brother and I actually did find out that she was buried in a pauper's grave outside of Ann Arbor. And we were able to put a plat and do all that stuff. But early on in this, I said, I, I seem to be keeping my mother alive. He said, I bet you blew out the candles on your birthday cake wishing she'd come back. And I said, yeah, how'd you know? And he goes, it's the magical thinking of an 11-year-old arrested or the eight-year-old when you were so anxious. And I had stomach aches so much that they sent me to a shrink and just anxiety about her. And then he said to me, and look what you do for a living. And I said, excuse me? He said, you wake the dead. You make Jackie Robinson and Abraham Lincoln come alive. Who do you think you're really trying to wake up? Now, it's not dime store psychology because he was an eminent psychologist. Yes. Yeah. It was incredibly helpful to me. And I feel like I went into a second stage in my professional life, but I went into a really important stage in my personal life. And I've I've never now not forgotten the date of my mother's death. I actually saw April 28th approaching and then receding, and I could never be present to it. It's now always been present since 93 and is a huge part of, of trying to come to terms with her legacy and also a way for me to fully embrace a non-intellectual aspect to what I do. It's not enough to say, oh, he's Ken Burns, he makes history films, or he does this thing with the camera and that Steve Jobs calls it the Ken Burns. I mean, all of that is irrelevant compared to the idea of a desire, which is still as passionate now as it is to wake the dead. So if I ever write a memoir, we know what the title will be. Um, <laughs> but it's an animating force in my daily life, and it's, it's as insistent today as it was working on the first films. A little bit less anxiety, a little bit less self-doubt, but all of the same hunger, or maybe greed is the right word. I mean, I shouldn't be working on eight films at once, and I am because I'm greedy for that thing that happens when you make a film better. You know, when you just, you subtract something, or you add something, or you discover something new. And it's just, I don't, you know, besides the love of my four daughters, I don't know anything, nature, just being in nature, which is, I became a full-fledged member since COVID. I really actually, it's no longer lip service. I'm there. And I'm, I feel so grateful I've been admitted. Those things are on an equal uh, par with me. And I'm just, if, if, if you took, People start teasing me like, Ken, it's time to go home or it's time for lunch, right? And I go, oh, oh sorry, sorry, sorry. Because if I could, I would just keep working until the film was done, you know? That's amazing. One yeah. of the films my father showed me was the Red Shoes Ballet, uh, yes. which is... Just keeps dancing. <laughs> 
you know, it's, it's a cautionary tale, you know, yeah. uh, we don't want to be one note and I'm afraid that I'm besides the, you know, trying to be a good dad and I've been an unqualified success for my two older grown daughters with, with kids of their own now. And I work with my oldest, the younger ones are still work in progress. So I can't really put a, put etch that in stone <laughs> at all. You know, there may be too much of a one note thing going on here, but it's, um, I'm, I, Scott, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Oh, I, something I have no doubt. Really, really fundamentally satisfying. It, it, even if it leaves problems in other areas of life. <laughs> well, I want to ask about what I think was another turning point in your life, which was the decision to go to Hampshire College in one of my favorite places in the world, Amherst. I love that uh, area. And, and I know that you've basically said that there was, you know, the decision to go there was a big one, but also that once you were there, there's a person who you met named Jerome Liebling, who the way you put it, I love that there's two quotes that I just, I thought are great. Quote, if I hadn't met Jerry, I'd be teaching film theory at some third rate college and bitter, close quote. But then the other one, quote, Dizzy Gillespie said of Louis, Louis Armstrong, know him, know me. And you say, no, Jerry Liebling, no me, period. So who, it sounds like he became more than a professor, almost like a surrogate father. Why, why did you go to Hampshire and what did he, what was the effect that he had on you there? So here I am in abject poverty in Ann Arbor, Michigan, because of the medical bills that we inherited from my mother's death. We subscribed to Time Magazine. My best friend subscribes to a magazine I'd never heard of called Newsweek. <laughs> Newsweek runs an, an article in like late September or early October of, of 1970 about this new college that opened up. And he looked and he showed me the article and, and, and he said, I'm going. And I went, me too, right? Now, I, as a faculty brat, would have gotten into the University of Michigan for you know nothing or a few hundred bucks a year. I could live at home. It would just be the same. But my family doctor had basically said to me, this big old radical guy who actually was mayor for a time of Ann Arbor, he said to me, you got to get out of town. So when the Hampshire thing opened up, it was like, yes. And so I quit high school early because I'd had advanced placement courses that put me over the credit limit. I had inherited like a thousand bucks from my mom's great aunt or my great aunt. I, my grandmother gave me a thousand bucks and Hampshire was the most expensive college on earth. $4,730 room board and tuition was 30 bucks more than Harvard. And I basically pushed all my chips onto that, like that poker game, you know, all onto this one year at Hampshire. And Hampshire gave me a scholarship and gave me a work job. And anyway, I pulled it off with nothing left over. And I went there and it just, I don't recognize the person who walked into Hampshire and the person who came out. And in early in my time there, I got a job at the bookstore. And when I told that, and I became friends with the guy who ran the bookstore and when I told him I had to go back to Ann Arbor, he said, well, what would it take for you to stay? I need somebody to take over the bookstore, you know, work at man, kind of manager type or assistant manager. And he kept naming it. I kept doing the math. And finally, he went up to the huge sum of $125 a week. But <laughs> I had to be essentially his indentured servant. I said, fine. So I took a year off from Hampshire and then did the remaining two years that I did it in four years, but I was only there three years. The most important thing is I met Elaine Mays and her 
colleague, older colleague, that he had brought her from Minnesota after he had arrived here and said it was great, Jerome Liebling. They were both social documentary still photographers. They reminded me that Hollywood calls itself the industry. There's nothing art in its stationary or title. There are palm trees and, and, and stuff, searchlights, but it's called the industry. Mm-hmm. That they opened my eyes to this thing that I had been inculcated since birth with, which was the still photograph. They opened my eyes to a world of experimental and documentary films. And I, I think I was a year in and that was what I was about. And then I merged the two worlds. I said, look, documentaries don't have to be expository or educational. They can be narrative. They can tell stories. And that the same law, the laws of storytelling are the same everywhere. For you, when somebody says, how's your day? And for me and for my kids and for Steven Spielberg, who I've had a conversation about this, and me. And so Stephen can make stuff up. I can't, but we (laughs) obey the same laws. And I realized that. And then because of my respect for the still images, these guys were, Jerry and Elaine were, I don't want to say amateur filmmakers. They were filmmakers. But the biggest thing was their photographic work. And so I just began to marry this interest in how you brought photographs alive and it isn't just the zoom in, which is the simplistic versions, whether you listen to them, it's first person voices in addition to a third person narrator, it's complex sound effects, you know, worthy of a feature film, it's period music, it's talking heads, it's footage as well as still photographs and live cinematography that you treat like paintings and, and paintings and photographs that you treat like live. And, you know, just a whole set of dynamics that began to emerge while I was in Hampshire that allowed me to go out and sort of arrogantly or naively or both decide I could start my own company, Florentine Films, which I did with two other Hampshire grads. And um, the rest is literally American history. That's all that that I've done. (laughs) They've they've been a lot uh, less parochial than me and done other things, uh, Roger Sherman and Buddy Squires, but... uh, I've stuck to this American history thing. And I, and you wouldn't, even in my last year at Hampshire, when I was working on my senior thesis, uh, Division 3 is what they call it at Hampshire, uh, it was on uh, making a film for Old Sturbridge Village, and it was on history. And the last shot is all live. The last shot is a pan across a painting. And I thought, <laughs> you know, boy, was that like a crumb left. That was like a fingerprint for the detective with the, with the, with the magnifying glass to go, aha. I figured out who he is. <laughs> um, one quick follow-up. Is it correct that you took only one history class at Hampshire? I had read that. Yeah, Russian history. I'm, I'm, the last time I took an American history course was in 11th grade, you know, when they kind of hold a gun to your head and say, you have to take it. I loved I always loved history, but I, I, I wouldn't anywhere thought that I would have been involved in what I'm doing. So, yeah, no, I took a Russian history course, but but I'm a filmmaker. I'm not a historian. Yeah. I, I just right. work in history the way somebody who works in oil as opposed to watercolor or does still lifes as opposed to landscapes. It's it's just the medium. And most of the word history is made up of the word story plus high. So there's a good introduction. <laughs> and that I mean, I, I'm interested in telling stories. I just happen to tell them in American history. And and that's what I enjoy doing. So. You graduated in 1975. You started Florentine Films, as you mentioned, in 76. Why in those, I guess, 14 years before the Civil War went out to the world, did you experience what you've described as 
debilitating, crushing anxiety? Was it the 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 sort of world of how Docs got financed at that point? I know that pretty quickly you guys were raising funds to try to make the the first film out of school, the Brooklyn Bridge. So again, you started the company in seventy six. That went out to the world in eighty one and did very well, got its Oscar nomination. But for I guess probably specifically for the years before Brooklyn Bridge put you even on the map, why was life so stressful and and what did it look like when you needed to raise funds for a documentary in those days? Well, I, I think the original period of stress was in the um, years leading up to my mom's death. When she died, there was a kind of release and it was always back there and unresolved. And I think coming into my own as an adult living away from home and then choosing this completely independent route sort of reawakened it. And so it was certainly present all the way through Brooklyn Bridge, through the Civil War, beyond the Civil War. It really took other kinds of work on myself to figure out, and and I'm still, I think, an anxious person, how to understand it. But someone told me, a therapist told me a really important thing, that that the anxiety is in a perverse way a friend because it's, it's focusing on the thing that isn't the problem. So it's distracting you from what the real thing is. And that's both friendly and it also prolongs the stuff. So at some point I engaged, probably in 93, when talking to my uh, late father-in-law, in kind of a, a work on oneself in a real serious way. And that's that's been obviously ongoing. And, and that's what, I mean, when, when Jefferson said pursuit of happiness, he didn't capital H. All the founders knew that he didn't mean the pursuit of whatever you wanted to do, or the pursuit of objects in a marketplace of things. It was talking about lifelong learning. It was about self-discovery. It was about the arts and about literature and about music and higher things. Those were the things that would produce in an enlightenment context happiness. So that's our job is to work as you do, as we all try to do at, at some point. But it was, it was so ter- terrifying. It's, I mean, it's still, I still wake up at four in the morning going <gasps> about this or that. And I now have relationships to it. But back then I didn't have any, any, any tools. You know, I, I developed some stuff for myself and that I've, I've helped other people and helped all of my kids uh, with, which I call the three things. My, my 15 year old who's benefited most recently from it, uh, calls them the three truths, but I'm not willing to go that far. Um, <laughs> and that is, um, this won't last. Get help from others. Be kind to yourself. And there's no yes buts you can give to any one of them. Everything does. Everything is constantly changing. So however miserable it is right now, it's actually a little bit different. Maybe it's more miserable. Maybe it's slightly less miserable, but it will be different. And that it's super important to be connected to other people. And the most important thing is to just be kind to oneself. And and that's why I have no, you know, I don't really have very many secrets because I just kind of have to just tell you what happened. But it was it was really debilitating, really really hard. And yet I made it. I remember going to a meeting someplace, and I clearly hadn't slept. I clearly was just miserable. And one this guy that wasn't really part of us, but was, and I haven't seen in 35 or 40 years to thank him. He just, we walked out of the meeting and he just looked at me and he says, you're going to be fine. I mean, like he read everything about me and it just, just, you know, we're going to be fine. 
Well, it seems like a, a key decision that you made early on before Brooklyn Bridge, but related to it, that probably relieved you of some of the pressure you maybe were feeling was literally getting out of town, getting out of New York and going to where you live now. Can you explain how you arrived at that? Yeah, it's where I live now. I, you know, it took forever to raise the money. I looked like I was 12 years old. I was <laughs> selling people the Brooklyn Bridge. They love to say, this child is selling me the Brooklyn Bridge. No. <laughs> I used to carry three ring binders. We now can't find them. So I'm worried that people think I'm making this up. Two big, three, you know, three, four inch thick binders filled with the rejections just from Brooklyn Bridge that I kept on my desk for 10 or 15 years just as a reminder of just how tough it is, you know? But we raised some money. We were able to start shooting. And and then we'd shot, I'd say, maybe 75% of it, mostly views and archives in and around New York. And it was tough. And I realized that I needed to get a real job. I lived in a fifth-floor walk-up on 25th Street near 8th Avenue, 275 bucks a month. And Chelsea before it was Chelsea. And it was going up to 325 And I needed a real job. I got offered a job at $800 a week, which was like, this was, this was like coming out of college and saying, hey, we're giving you $150,000 a year, you know, whatever. That's what it felt like. And um, I knew that if I put that footage down, I'd wake up and I'd be 45 and I would have been working for somebody else and I would have not done what I wanted to do. So I had a lot of friends who after Hampshire and Amherst and other places had moved north into southern Vermont and southern New Hampshire. And so we went up and looked for a town, my future wife and I, and we found this house that I'm living in now. And uh, we came back. Uh, actually, we, we didn't find anything. We came back. I got immediately sick from, I'm sure, anxiety. And then we, I made a call and I heard that this might be available. And she went back up by herself, drove up alone and walked in and said, we'll take it. And my two oldest daughters were born upstairs in my bedroom. I used to edit uh, films in what became the nursery. It then moved out to where the offices are above the garage, now in a house that we, an editing house off the town green. The town is about a mile and a half away. It's different and it's the same, but the, I used to say that the best decision I ever made was moving to Walpole. It's actually the second best, Scott, because after the Brooklyn Bridge was nominated for an Academy Award, and there's some funny stories around that, everybody said, so you're coming back to the city, you're going to LA, you're doing that. I said, no, I'm staying. And I realized that it was in the face of success. And my third film was nominated for Academy Award. And things, they're that actually, people paid money to, libraries paid money to buy them and 60 millimeter prints. And I actually could stop heating the house by wood and by oil, it still seemed like what had made it possible was somehow this isolation of Walpole, the beauty of nature. And, and this is really, the kind of work we do is hugely labor intensive. So here's the bargain. I gave up the society of my colleagues for this other kind of model up here. And, you know, for better and for worse, but it's, it's, it, it was the best decision, a professional decision I've ever made, which was to stay here. So I'd love to hear about the Oscar stories you were just referring to, but before you tackle that, I just have to ask, you know, people think of you, I think because of God, you must've interviewed thousands and thousands of people for your films over the years. I think that one of the first 
and one of the more memorable happened during the making of the Brooklyn Bridge. And uh, I wonder if you can tell me about encountering Arthur Miller. (laughs) So this is a lesson to all of you out there to do your homework. (laughs) I, um, I decided, you know, we were just basically collecting everything we could about the Brooklyn Bridge. That's what we do on every project. It's sort of like with an apron, you look at this orchard and you try to take back as much fruit as you can. So here's this celebrated playwright, Arthur Miller, who's written a book called A View from the Bridge, and every edition of every copy has got a picture of the Brooklyn Bridge or a drawing of the Brooklyn Bridge or a painting of the Brooklyn Bridge. So we got to interview Arthur Miller, and he kept putting me off and saying, no, 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 no. So finally, he agrees. I got to come up to his farm in Roxbury, Connecticut, we'll drive up from the city, and we'll do it. And we had filmed either earlier that day or the night before, and we hadn't changed out the film. So we only had in the magazine like about 150 feet left, three minutes, and we'd had just the end of the spool of sound. And so we go up there, and I, just before we get in the van, buy a copy of A View from the Bridge. And I'm <laughs> I'm going through it. It doesn't mention the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> and by the time I arrive at his farm, I am just petrified, just, I mean, so, and, and everybody's going, Ken, it'll be okay. Whatever it is, he'll forget, whatever it'll be, he'll, he'll forgive you. And, um, I arrive at, at, at his place and I knock on his front door, modest little farmhouse. And he, you know, I'm like five, seven, five, eight, he's six foot something. He looked like 25 feet, he opens the door and he says, you know, I don't know a goddamn thing about the Brooklyn bridge. And I'm just like, at that point, kill me now, Lord, kill me now. So he says, okay, you know, now at this point, we usually would go in, we go to a study or a living room, we'd light for an hour, hour and a half, and then we'd do an interview for an hour and a half. He says, come on, we'll do it outside. He said, well, you know, actually, Mr. Miller, we'd like to do it. He goes, we'll do it outside. And he says, come on and do it now. So we can't change to a new magazine for a 11 and a half, 12 a minute reel of 416 millimeter feet. Um, it's start now. I do not remember the question that I asked. We turned on the sound. It was the late fall light was beginning to fade. And he, I've never used essentially 100% of an interview. He said, you see, the city is fundamentally a practical utilitarian invention. And all of a sudden you see this steel poetry sticking there. And it's a shock. I mean, he could have, it does what it does. It carries its own weights. It does what it's supposed to do. But I mean, he could have built another Manhattan bridge. So it makes you think that maybe you too could add something and be beautiful. And I came back from that interview and like the young Orson Welles in Citizen Kane, I kind of, in my own heart, I tacked that up that maybe you too could add something that would last and be beautiful. That became the very last words of the Brooklyn Bridge film. And it became my challenge to myself, but more the generous sharing of this amazing man. We became friends. His voice, thick Brooklyn accented Arthur Miller is the voice of, you know, William Tecumseh Sherman, born in Ohio. He was a voice in several other films. I've interviewed him. Uh, I knew him at the very end of his life. Uh, I mean, we just stayed close and friendship. And I have had the opportunity in front of him to tell that story. I've told it in commencement addresses, but you know, the biggest thing is be prepared. But I, I just think at the end of the day, 
that that's what that we last, whether we tend gardens or children or hedge funds even, but whatever it is that maybe do something that would last. Oh, that's great. So I guess for a first film, when you're trying to do the math of uh, how old you were, you're quite young when the Brooklyn Bridge came out still to, to be invited to the Oscars for your first film. And then, as you said, your third a few years later, four years later with uh, Statue of Liberty. What's that like? Well, it was very cool. I'd never been to California before, and I was going to the Oscars. But what happened, the best story about that is what happened beforehand. So I was alone in the house, and I went out for an errand. And when when it's February, I had this big, huge wood stove anchored here which you'd send in these two foot logs and you, you know, you could radiate a lot of heat and you cut a hole in the ceiling, goes up to the upstairs, another uh, stove at the other end. So what happens is, is you got the thing going, you get it going really fast. And if you're leaving, you turn it down, way down and you go outside and then you come back and you can usually uh, do some embers. So I come back after a few hours away, house is empty and it's cold. And I look and the stove is out, but then I look right here where I am. In the answering machine, which would normally have one or two messages a month, had like 12 or 15 or 20 or, you know, 900 or whatever it was. And I started pressing. And the first is a hang-up. The second is a hang-up. The third is the, uh, is the, um, the AP in Concord, New Hampshire. Please call us. Next is the AP in Boston. Please call us. And I'm going, what's going on? Then it's a guy that I knew in Los Angeles who was a filmmaker, but he was also a distributor. And I kind of decided that he was going to distribute my film, Brooklyn Bridge, in the AV market because, you know, nobody had, there were no DVD. I mean, there's certainly no DVDs uh, out there. And there were not, you know, the, the other forms of showing the film, you know, VHS uh, hadn't yet really happened or beta or whatever it was. So anyway, I I start thinking, oh my God. And then I said, I get a call. It says, Mr. Burns, this is so-and-so from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Can you please call us? So I call, the line is busy. I then call my friend. He said, you've been nominated for an Academy Award as Best Feature Documentary. And I just jump up and down, jump up and down, still all alone. Look, and the stove is still out. It's February. It's effing cold out. So I go outside doing my happy dance without my coat on, just my shirt. I go over to the wood pile. I get a big, huge thing. I'm just on top of the world. And as I'm coming back, I slip on the ice and I fall. And as I fall, I twist and fall into a snowbank that the snowplow has built up plowing the driveway. No harm. I'm still holding the wood in my arms. But my shirt has pulled out of my pants and my skin is beginning to melt the snow and it's trickling down my shorts. Okay, And I'm sitting there by myself thinking, I am the only nominee (laughs) who has been given this incredible gift of humility. Yes. (laughs) Um, And I know I'm the only nominee who had that experience. And it just has stayed with me as just whatever it is, whatever I would go through, whoever I would meet, the White House or meet the Queen at a royal dinner or meet some of my favorite actors. I always remembered 
They still got to put their pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> they still are susceptible to that same kind of uh, hubris. And there, and it wasn't even bad. It was just the joyful stuff. But there was a nice little reminder from God, That's you know, fantastic. don't be so, don't be so whatever it is, you know, it's great. It was, it was hilarious. <laughs> so, um, you know, I guess over those next few years, I'm going to, I don't mean to, you know, gloss over these because many of these were uh, big moments in your life, I know. But so Brooklyn Bridge is 81. The Shakers is 84. Statue of Liberty, again, Oscar nominated 85. A very good one where you take a subject that people, again, you know, think they know everything about and show them that they don't. Huey Long, which I think had been suggested from what I read by someone who had given you an award for Brooklyn Bridge. That's 85. 88, Congress. 88 also, I think, Thomas Hart Benton. But through those years, I believe, through all of those other ones, was something going on in the background, the Civil War, which when it finally came out in 1990, just to remind our listeners, nine episodes, 11 hours, $3.2 million cost, I believe, five and a half years of work, longer than the Civil War itself took. So what made you decide to tackle such a huge subject? And how did you wind up getting sort of the the blessing of a broadcast partner to do such a long thing? Was there, I don't know if there was any precedent for that. There wasn't. And it was, um, it was new and it was scary. I read Michael Shara's book, uh, The Killer Angels, and I finished it on Christmas Day. I was visiting my dad in Michigan, and uh, I said to him, I know what I'm going to do next. And he said, what? I said, the Civil War. And he said, what part? And I said, all of it. And he just sort of shook his head like my <laughs> idiot son and walked out of the room. I remember that. I was went, uh-oh. But I, I, I decided to do that in large part because it had loomed in all of the films I'd worked on. I mean, the Brooklyn Bridge wouldn't have been built without this new metal called steel, which the bridge helped to promote, which the war helped to promote the use of. The man who built the Brooklyn Bridge, Washington Roebling, got his practical training as an engineer for the Union Army. Uh, the Shakers de- uh, declined precipitously after the Civil War, not because of their celibacy, but because people who had just murdered 750,000 of their own people were less interested in the soul's survival which was the animating spiritualist movements of the late 1700s and early 1800s. And the Statue of Liberty was originally intended as a gift from France uh, to the United States to commemorate the end of the Civil War and Lincoln's ultimate sacrifice and the abolition of slavery and despotism. Huey Long came from a dirt poor North Louisiana parish that was too poor to support the Confederacy. They saw the Confederacy, the ownership of slaves, as a rich man's game. They weren't going to fight for that. Uh, and so became a hotbed of kind of radicalism and populism that eventually spawned uh, Huey Long. Thomas Hart Benton painted murals uh, of the Civil War. Congress's greatest test was when there was two Congresses, one in Washington, D.C., and the other in first Montgomery, Alabama, and then later Richmond, Virginia. Uh, so it was looming over. It was the shadow, the biggest shadow ever cast, as it is to this day. You want to understand what's going on with Black Lives Matter? You got to go back, obviously, to 1619. But the Civil War is one of the telling. Uh, it's the most important event in American history. Everything before it kind of led up to it. Everything since has in many ways been a consequence, uh, whether we're aware of it or not. So it was the big watershed thing. And I was zero prepared for what happened to it. I mean, I went to the press tour in LA 
at the Century Plaza Hotel and all the all the uh, critics said, man, you know, this is really good, but no one's going to watch it. And I went, oh, okay, like, okay, I, I sort of felt it was good too. Um, but no one's going to watch it because uh, Stephen Bochco has a new police procedural called Cop Rocks. <laughs> so... That's what you would have been up. That's what you were up against. Well, before we talk about what obviously did happen with the Civil War, I, I got to ask you: that was your first, as as we say, uh, foray into docu series, long form um, versus the the versus the documentary feature length film. Can you compare and contrast the two? And and also, you know, when you set out to do a project, do you know which one it's going to be, or do you have to see how you know where it leads you? It's mostly where it leads us. I think we've gotten a little bit better. And, and more often, it's a prodigal journey in which you set out. It's nothing like you thought. But by the time you finished, it's a lot like what you thought or hoped uh, is probably the better word. Yeah, nobody was prepared for this. I got turned down by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which had been a pretty reliable funder in the first films that I had done because they just didn't think we could suspend, we could sustain an interest in looking at still photographs uh, instead of an hour or an hour and a half, which the films had been up to that point, but over what was going to be five one hours. It was just, all of a sudden I said, whoa, this is working. I think it's going to be twice that and then some. It's about 11 and a half hours. And so it was very, very, very iffy. And no one had done it. And we were going to do it in a new way, too. We were going to stunt it, as it's called. Instead of running an episode once a week, the way all television was, we were going to do it as an event. So it started Sunday night and we showed the first episode and then we showed two and three on Monday night, four and five, six and seven. And then Thursday night was eight and nine. And um, Johnny Carson talked about it every night, talked about it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday night. And I was on the tonight show with Jay Leno on Friday night. And I mean, the changes that my body went through, astronauts go through between Sunday night and and that and that Friday when I was flown. I had to go to Boston and miss I watched on the alone on the TV set in my hotel room the night before, the Thursday night end of it, sobbing like a baby, talking with my wife and just kind of like what's going on. And uh, in the next moment I'm, you know, on the tonight show uh it it just it was amazing more important than that was the fact that it represented a hunger for understanding something that is central to who we are without the usual apologies to the southern point of view i mean people say that the history is written by the winners it's just not true the South, as we know, there, why are there hundreds of monuments still up uh, to people who are our enemies? Uh, the United States uh, name for the Civil War is not the Civil War. The official U.S. government title is called the War of the Rebellion. Abraham Lincoln never once referred to Confederates or the Confederate States. He referred to those in rebellion or the rebels. Mm-hmm. And they are people who are responsible for more loyal American deaths than either Hitler or Tojo. And somehow we've got hundreds and hundreds of monuments to them in defense of something that's indefensible in a country founded four score and five years before on the idea that all men are created equal. The reason why is because the guy who wrote that sentence 
owned more than 100 human beings himself. And we've been always giving ourselves mulligans on this for way too long. And, and chickens have come home to roost. Yes, yes. Well, just to, I want to go back and contextualize how big a thing it was. 14 million, watched the first episode, 40 million overall on that initial run. I saw that there was a 300%, 300% spike in visitors to Gettysburg. This $50, ta- $50 coffee table companion sold hundreds of thousands of copies. So you had definitely awakened something there. And I think one of the, one of the, I want to ask you if you can pinpoint, aside from the quality of the, the film itself, was what clicked with people? I wondered if there's sometimes, it seems like in almost each one of your, especially the docuseries, you've chosen very carefully talking heads, and there's always one or two who really pop maybe more than others. And I thought, I think for Civil War, it's got to have been Shelby Fudd. Well, yeah, right? I, I don't, uh, you know, I don't know, Scott. I, I know it's a good film. But it's the story of us, both the U.S. and us, mm-hmm. in an intimate sense. And that's what caught people's attention. It was powerful. And we do have lots of people, you know, talking heads that pop out, and Shelby was the one there and other places. But it's not carefully chosen. We don't know what's going to happen when we do an interview. You can come out and say, oh, that's a C minus or a, you know, a, a C plus, and it turns out to be an A plus in the final film. Or you can come out thinking it's an A, and they don't show up in the film. I mean, it just, it is how it, how it gets going. So does it bother you that a, you know, you, you are, somebody says television documentaries, you're the first guy that comes to mind. Does it bother you that many of these have not had a theatrical release? Well, the, the Huey Long did and uh, the Central Park Five did. And, and that's appropriate for those kinds of films. No, I, I made early on the source of funding turned out to be humanities groups and others, uh, foundations that wanted us to give it, give it for free to PBS, which we do. Uh, now PBS is involved in helping fund them, so we're giving it to them for free for the first broadcast stuff. But I traded in a much bigger audience. I mean, when you start talking about 40 million people for a documentary, yeah. and then, you know, we got baseball had, you know, 45 million, and uh, we think Vietnam had somewhere around 60. I mean, that's a lot for the first broadcast, yeah. let alone the fact that the Civil War, if today was a school day in America, which it isn't, They'd be showing it in hundreds of different schoolrooms, maybe, you know, 10 minutes here, 20 minutes there, whatever. But that's a film that's 30 years old. And that's true of our Lewis and Clark. And it's true of baseball. It's true of lots of the films. So I think what they're doing is they're tapping into a curiosity that's animated in some ways by what we were talking about at the very beginning about the question, who am I? The big animated question for my work is, who are we? But that will always reduce for anybody audience or filmmaker into who am I? And I I think we're all obligated to pursue that. How did your life change personally after, as a result of the civil war? Obviously you're now a lot more well-known and I see you're having dinner with the queen and things that are just kind of at a different level than they would have been before. But how did it in your, in your memory change and how did you handle that change? Well, it changed everything and nothing because I lived in Walpole, New Hampshire. So I was insulated. People did drive. Somebody drove, a couple drove in an RV all the way from Idaho, just to say we were bereft when the series wasn't on the Friday night. 
and we were headed east for a family reunion or some such thing. And we decided to find you, you know, could have been scary, but it was really actually nice. (laughs) And, um, you know, my second daughter, Lily, who's a big producer, she does broad city and, and search party and, uh, uh, Russian Doll and Jesus and Mero and Samantha B and other stuff. She was three and a half. And we were walking down Broadway between 57th and 56th on the west side of the street. And up ahead, it was a few weeks after the broadcast, up ahead, some people stopped, turned, and recognized me. She's holding my hand, of course, but she squeezes my hand really hard and says, Daddy, look. They want Ken Burns. Now, this is before the internet and name names where it's all one word. But it was the greatest lesson. To her, I was daddy. To me, I was me. But there was somebody else called Ken Burns. And, and she wanted to warn me that, they, that these people were coming to see Ken Burns. And That's great. It, was a wonderful, it was like the falling in the snow, slipping in the snow. Yes. It was a kind of wonderful gift. So in this town, if I stood on any kind of ceremony, you know, it's not. It's not what matters. I've been very, very fortunate. The film's made money. People watch, but I'm, I'm still in a, I mean, I'm still here. And that's, that's the most important thing. So it's, it's meant everything to be, to stay here. I think the professional change may have been that, was that when you started having multiple projects going at the same time? No, the greed began earlier than that, Scott. It began when I was going to do a film on the Statue of Liberty. And then the Huey Long thing was suggested by a professor at LSU. And I I couldn't say no. And so I was, while I was doing Civil War, I was finishing Statue and Huey and also doing Congress and Thomas Hart Benton. And it's been very rare since then that I've ever had only one Shot. And right now they're eight. So, yeah, that's amazing. you know, it's and a lot of it has to do with the extraordinary people. I mean, I, this is the other fallacy of the auteur theory is that it then presupposes that everybody's doing everything, that, that the auteur is doing everything. I'm not. I've worked with two extraordinary writers over the last uh, 30 years and plus case of Jeffrey Ward and 30 years in the case of Dayton Duncan. My son-in-law and my uh, David McMahon and my daughter Sarah Burns are writing uh, films like The Central Park Five and Jackie Robinson. And now we're working on a big multi-part series, four parts, eight and a half hours on Muhammad Ali, which they've written. They're really good at it. I do a lot of writing myself, uncredited, but it's you know it's just in the service of making things better. Well, I, get, I guess coming out of Civil War, though, the, the relationship that began on that one, I think that has maybe been in some ways the the most senior collaborator would be Lynn Novick, right? Yeah, so Lynn I hired just after we, we were about to lock it, and I hired her, and she said, well, I'm, I can't start because I'm getting married and going on my honeymoon. I said, that's fine. <laughs> and then so she came and really to watch the end of it, and then yeah. – uh, she and I became co-producers on baseball and jazz and uh, several other things in the 90s. But also we always had other producing lines uh, as well. You know, um, so, you know, I've worked with Paul Barnes, Dayton Duncan, Sarah Burns, and uh, now David Schmidt and Sarah Botsign. So there are lots of different producing things. But Lynn has been, if not the oldest one, then one of the, one of the oldest. So as you came out of Civil War maybe even while you were finishing it up, you seem to have already decided that baseball was going to be next. How do you decide to go from Civil War to baseball? And um, 
I guess, were you already a big fan of the sport? I've been a fan since the very, very beginning. I, yeah. I, I saw it as the sequel to the Civil War series. I really did. I mean, I thought of a friend of mine at a bar in Washington, D.C. had suggested baseball. We were writing stuff down on napkins, and um, Mike Hill suggested, I thought it was a great idea. And I just assumed then it would be like a two-hour kind of film. And then as we got into it, we, we realized this is a story about race. It's a story about the first real progress in civil rights after the Civil War is Jack Roosevelt Robinson, the grandson of a slave, making his way to first base at Ebbets Field on April 15, 1947. This is before lunch counters, before Brown versus Board of Education, before Montgomery bus strikes, before, you know, a lot of things. He was there. And so I, I really saw it and then jazz as a trilogy of, yeah. of American uh, stuff. And and now, of course, I've got a trilogy of wars, and I'm about to add to it. We have the Civil War, World War II, and Vietnam, and now we're working on a history of the American Revolution, which I think is important for us to go back and sort of remember what actually took place, and it's not just the top-down story. You know, it's it's, it's important. And, but I do want to stress, besides the writers that have been talented cinematographers and editors yeah. and producers like Lynn that have been central to making these films, and as I've gotten older, I've been able to entrust more and delegate more. I mean, I'm still there for every screening, still there for every editing session. I, I make those decisions, but I have to go off and do every interview. I don't have, as I did before, I don't have to shoot every live thing. I don't have to hand shoot every archive as I did. I don't have to do all the things that I, that I actually did. And well, I was going to ask you, is that tough though? Because when you're a, I, when you're a perfectionist, it's tough to to trust, even if you know the people around you are good. I mean, baseball was, I think, the first time that you let someone else, in this case, Lynn, do Rick, some Rick did a couple. Rick, my brother Rick did a couple of interviews yeah. in Civil War. Um, but yes, no, it, it's hard, but that's lawful. You have to do that. You just have to do that. You can't keep people stuck in the same position. They have to grow. And they have when they come to you and say, look, I want to produce, you go, okay, let's see what we can do. And it might be a housewife that's been in administration, you know, who moves into this as Pam Balcom did uh, for us or other people. You know, that's you have to just sort of listen and, and make space in our stuff. So it's hard, but the rewards of giving that up are, are so much greater. I mean, they've they've watched, they've gone to interviews, they've listened to me. They know how to do it. In the case of Dayton Duncan, he was already a reporter, so it wasn't a question of like telling him how to ask people questions. But in other, you know, Paul Barnes, who was my longtime editor, we produced uh, Stanton Anthony together, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, Not For Ourselves Alone is the name of it, and Jack Johnson, and we did the Roosevelts together. And he was just not comfortable in doing interviews. He ended up doing a couple, but I, I went back to doing, instead of 50% or 10% on a film, doing, you know, 95%. So yeah. it's just, it just depends, but I don't give up the most important stuff. Well, and I think I'm, I'm the scratch they, narrator yes. and <laughs> I'm, I'm involved, you know, in receiving and changing the scripts and I am there at every edit thing and we lock it when I say it's locked, you know, and I'm changing two frames or four frames or whatever. It might be. <laughs> I think with baseball also the, you know, we were talking about commentators that pop. You were the one that I believe did do the interview with Buck O'Neill, who became very big part of your We did four interviews with Buck and I did one here, one big one. Uh, I think we did four, maybe three. And Lynn did the others. Uh, she first had interviewed him and said she'd gone to the Otisaga Hotel for a reunion of Negro League players at Cooperstown and came back and said, yeah, I, I did five or six 
but this one guy. And so we looked at it and I said, go do him again, ask him some more. And then we brought him to my house. I did one here and I, there was made up in one other one too. Anyway. Yeah. No, Buck, Buck, you know, I don't know what to say uh, of everybody, you know, particularly these days where things are so bad. The idea as our Judeo Christian tradition suggests that man is made in God's image. There's almost nothing, Scott, that we do that suggests that's true. And then you meet somebody like Buck O'Neill and you realize, oh, right, this is where we could be in terms of love, in terms of forgiveness, in terms of uh, warmth and, and uh, generosity. And so, yeah, he's like a dad to me. Yeah, I loved him. In fact, we used to travel with him when my big girls were little. And I remember Lily said, do you have a family plan? And the Delta Airlines person looked at Buck, looked down at these two little white girls and up at this white guy with long hair and said, uh, family plan? And Buck goes, yeah, family plan. And she goes, <laughs> oh, yes, we do. So, and, and, my, and, and my oldest daughter, Sarah, when she got married, um, she detoured on her honeymoon to, to Buck's deathbed. I'd already gone out to see him, said my goodbyes. But he, you know, she went out hundreds of miles out of the way to see him. And he admonished my new son-in-law is, you take care of my granddaughter. You know, it was really, he was an amazing, amazing human being. Amazing. Human being. One, one last addendum about baseball and then moving on from that. Uh, you ended that story in 92, even though the, the film came out in 94, but then and just to remind people, it was nine episodes or what you called nine innings over just over 18 hours. I think your longest. And yet, I'm trying to do the math. I think it was like 15, 16 years later, you returned to the subject 16 years later with the 10th inning, just catching up on what had happened since. And, um, you know, in this case, just to remind folks, you dealt the strike, the Ripken streak, the steroid era, the, your, your Red Sox breaking their curse. And basically spanning the arc of Barry Bonds' fascinating career, I don't believe any other time you've revisited a subject directly like that. What's that? What was that like? It was absolutely necessary. When the Red Sox won the World Series, I had to go back. They had been the <laughs> we chosen. We knew the Yankees would be the dominant team of the story that we were about to tell, and they were, and necessarily, and they were hugely important in our update, the tenth inning their amazing years in the late 90s, their dominance of baseball and, and it all props to them and particularly to Joe Torrey. But we had chosen the Dodgers to follow because of Jackie and the Red Sox because of their star-crossed uh, thing. The, Do the Dodgers, the first to integrate, the Red Sox, the last to integrate, the Red Sox, my team, but you know all of the ill-fated stuff that attended to them. And so when they won, and they won in such unbelievable fashion. I mean, the World Series didn't even really matter. It was the it was the pennant again, coming back from three games to nothing from the Yankees. And then I realized that I it was impossible to just celebrate my team. So we celebrated the Braves, and we celebrated the Yankees, and we celebrated great play all around, uh, like the Giants. And we celebrated we we investigated the strike, and we investigated performance enhancing drugs and, and all of it. And so nestled in there is my Red Sox uh, yes. victory. But it, uh, you know, the last thing that we covered is the 2009 World Series when the Yankees won. So yeah. uh, you were fair to, to my boys. <laughs> and Joe Torrey was one of the real stars of that film. If you had to yes. point one talking head that really popped out uh, among yep. many, Joe was really great. So baseball was 94. Jazz was 2000, but in between, 
the uh, what I guess has been described as it's called the American Lives series within a very short period of time. Thomas Jefferson, Lewis and Clark, Frank Lloyd Wright, not ourselves alone, as you mentioned, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, Mark Twain, all excellent, all I could ask you about, but I don't have we don't have enough time to dive super into that. So I'm going to go right to jazz 2000, 10 two hour episodes, six years of work. And another one that in a way I think sort of emanated indirectly from the civil war, right? Well, you know, I, shortly after the civil war, I met Wynton Marsalis and we become friends, really kind of brothers. And he suggested to me, you know, you should do something on jazz. And I'm like, yeah, right. Nobody tells me what I'm going to do. Right? <laughs> but I did notice that in baseball, all of the central episodes, the fourth, the twenties, the thirties, the forties, the fifties, jazz was in sixties. Jazz was a huge part of what was making the episodes really hum. And so we'd interviewed Gerald early in baseball. Uh, I was an African-American scholar from Washington University, teaches at Washington University. And he said, you know, when they study the American civilization 2,000 years from now, and that's a long time, America will be known for only three things, the Constitution, baseball, and jazz music. They're the three most beautiful things we've ever produced. And so I realized early on in baseball that jazz was what the next big series had to be, and it was. And I'm really glad. I'm as proud of that film as any film that we've ever, ever, ever done. Oh, that's terrific. And uh and I know you'd said that it, it changed you in a lot of ways personally. One thing I read that another thing you said that was fascinating, and I don't think this only applied to jazz or country music, your your series about music, but you've said that you write and edit to the music. How does that work? Well, so in traditional Hollywood version, you know, you might have temp stuff, but you edit. And then once you've finished editing, you add the soundtrack kind of icing as opposed to something that's baked in. But music is the fastest art form there is. Winton calls it the art of the invisible. It, 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 you know, it works on you faster than anything else, faster than a painting, certainly faster than a movie or a play or a book, even a book whose great first sentence or a movie whose great first shot is compelling. Music is really so quick. And so why is it something we wait to the end to have it be? We want it to be as central a figure as the still photographs or the footage or the live cinematography or the talking heads or the narration or the first person voices or the sound effects. And so we've done that. And so we record our music usually before editing happens. And we will, I'll cut a line of narration to fit a phrase of music uh, or expand it to fit that phrase of music if I need to. So it's just, it's yielding to that art of the invisible and saying, I mean, my brother, again, super smart. We did a conversation last year at the Telluride Film Festival together. And I was trying to allude to this music thing. And he said, I think that all art, but it's certainly all movies, hopes that when it dies and goes to heaven, it's music. Right. It turns into music. So I think that all of the language I've used all my professional life in the editing room has been hold that a beat longer. You know, it's all kind of the most elementary, rudimentary, superficial uh, kind of musical terms. And, and we do that all the time. And I'm always going beat, beat, you know, saying to an editor, no, 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 you ran through a stop sign or open up a little bit here or, you know, it, it's held too long. You know, it's, I'm essentially saying, don't make that a whole note, make it a, a half note or a quarter note, you know, and that's the kind of conversations we've had since the very beginning, since Brooklyn Bridge. So yeah. underneath it all, 
underneath all, I think what my brother Rick was suggesting is that underneath all art is music. And what we're looking for is that music, you know. I want to close jazz by asking you about something that I know, <laughs> going back and rereading everything for this, it's been interesting to see how many people want to tell you uh, exactly how they think you should have ended your films and all of that. And especially with jazz, the fact that there were a few decades still of music that were not addressed in the series really seemed to enrage certain people. And I know it's happened with other things, uh, other certain other projects. But for you, how do you know where you want to end a story? Yeah, well, I, I, it's pretty simple, Scott. You know, the, the sort of rule of thumb is 20, 25, 30 years out. I mean, okay. journalism covers stuff up to yesterday. History has to have that perspective gained by triangulating the passage of time into some understanding. And so, you know, even in baseball, we really untethered by the early 70s and we're getting to be more impressionistic in our coverage, even though we did end with the with the World Series in, in 92. We went back in the 10th inning and dissected the last play of the NLCS, where a young outfielder for the Pittsburgh Pirates, left fielder, makes a slightly slow throw that just doesn't catch Sid Bream, lumbering Sid Bream at the plate. It's the last play he'll play for the Pittsburgh Pirates. His name is Barry Bonds, and he animates the entire arc of that of that series. You know, it's uh, somebody gave me a, a T-shirt about ten years ago, and I, I wear it sometimes to to consultants' meetings. But underneath, I never have showed it, and it <laughs> says "Make your own effing film," although it doesn't say effing. <laughs> and and there's a and I'm invariably polite. I get it. You know, everybody wants to do this. In jazz, I had the easiest thing. I would go to these people who actually, you know, the since. Jazz got the most vociferously negative comments, you know, it did really, really well, but it would, people just were apoplectic, you know, I've gotten hate mail, racist hate mail from the Civil War and baseball and other films that we've done and jazz, but this was like, people were apoplectic, you know, it'd be too black centric, too this, too that, whatever it was, but that we'd left out all these people. So I said, okay, please tell me among the contemporary world of jazz, who is the equal of Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, and John Coltrane. If you can tell me of those seven men, who is their equal right now? And they would say, well, we don't know. It's going to take another 20 or 30 years. I said, thank you. <laughs> you know, and that's it. I mean, I, I owe a deep apology to all the people we've left out of films because it didn't fit. Too many notes, as they say in Amadeus. Harmon Killebrew had a really wonderful you know, run in with, with somebody once I was working on my Frank Lloyd Wright film and going through this exercise room at the Johnson wax Racine building, the greatest, you know, professional offices ever built by Frank Lloyd Wright. Beautiful day. Everybody should be outside one guy on a stationary bike. And as I pass by him, he goes, my brother hates you. And the first thing I think of is there's no brother. He's talking about yeah, this. Yeah, right, right, right. So he go, and I said, and I, so I turn to him and I go baseball and he goes, yeah, how'd you know? So now I know there's no brother. So I think where I am, and I think about all the stuff we left out, and I had one beautiful section on Harmon Killebrew. So I turn to him and I go, Harmon Killebrew. And he goes, yeah, how'd you know? So I keep going. He keeps pedaling furiously. And that's the story. It's like, if you want me to do an encyclopedia, 
Right. I can include everybody, but nobody right. reads an encyclopedia. No, and these are probably the same people that are complaining about it's too long. It's too long. Right. Right. Well, <laughs> here's the thing, Scott. Nobody comes up and says it's too long. Right. I, that's my biggest thing. You can. I love it when t- somebody tells me what I've left out. Right. Like I've got one right. of my closest friends is also a guy named Ken, and, and he is still pissed off that I didn't do his Chicago White Sox team at the end of the. Uh, of the 1950s. Now, the, our, the biggest, most bloated episode is the, is the capital of baseball. The 1950s is like two hours and 40 minutes long. I mean, it might as well be the seven samurai for crying out loud. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't get that kind of leeway, but I took oh, it okay. and it just, you, you were, we were killing scenes just to get it down to that. So I, I don't apologize. I feel actually a sigh of relief when people complain that 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 the, I we left all this stuff out. You just go because yeah. they're not saying I was bored out of my mind. Right. All the Jazzerati just listened so closely, and you know, it, it it exposed some racial fissures. You know, yeah. because if I asked you to name the ten greatest painters in the world, I don't think any of them would be African or African American, and you weren't saying that African Americans couldn't paint or Africans couldn't paint. But if 23 of the top 25 people we focused on were African-American in jazz, that was a crime beyond all reckoning that we had Benny Goodman and Dave Brubeck, but not all these other people that they thought should be in and deserved, got mentions, but didn't have the same takeout biographies. I I just, you know, particularly today, I just got to go, sorry. (laughs) Well, uh, plugging along towards the present after jazz, you had Horatio's Drive, America's First Road Trip, 2003, Unforgivable Blackness, The Rise and Fall of Jack Johnson, 2005, and then The War, which you did with Lynn Novick. Largest PBS audience in a decade, 10 episodes, 14 hours. The thing that I, I was curious about, you know, Civil War, you bit off the entire thing. Here you made a decision to focus on four towns and the impact of the war on, on people from those communities. Why did you approach them differently? What, what convinced you? Yeah. It's a good question. Um, uh, the first thing is, is that this is the first project in which this subject matter had a thousand brethren, whereas often we were the first person to come through or the second or the fourth, you know, this, everybody had done World War II and well. So we were trying to say, we first thought maybe we can tell it through the experiences of one town, Waterbury, Connecticut. But it just, it, it was so, there were so few people, the actuarial tale, tables didn't permit us because there were just, we needed a representative action among survivors. So we changed it to four towns, three of about 100,000, Sacramento, Mobile, and Waterbury, and then a tiny town in, in Minnesota. But we told the whole war. We told it from the top down, but also the bottom up, and, and that helped us. It's still the longest film that's ever been shown at the Cannes Film Festival. It's actually seven episodes and 15 hours, and um, they showed it in succession going from theater to theater. So it's longer than Shoah, and um, they showed the whole thing, which was flabbergasting. And there was a little United Nations of audience that sort of gave, gave up their normal you know, festival stuff and, and watched the whole thing and felt that it was something that they would like to do about their own experiences. And that's what it was. We just saw the war, the greatest cataclysm in human history, as we say in the opening sentence, through the eyes of the people from these four geographically distributed American towns. So we were not without mindfulness about what the Soviet army was doing, but we were also determined to keep it intimate. As, and that's a way that you don't lose your, um, your connection to things. 
And speaking of keeping an intimate and a connection to things, can you share what is the last image of the war? Well, the last image of the war is one of the first images of the war, which is a picture of my father. And um, we used it as the title shot about five or six minutes in to episode one. It's the last shot. My father got to France, I'm happy to say, just before VE Day. So he wasn't in combat. If he had not gone to officer's training school, he would have been the fodder in the Battle Battle of the Bulge. And this conversation might not be happening. Um, But the war shaped him and changed him and hurt him and exalted him. And so I just wanted to you know, have a little tiny, it's not a Hitchcockian appearance, but in a way it is, it's Robert no, Kyle great. Burns Jr. appearing in the film. Yeah. Without, without even being, uh, identified on screen. With, I never would once do that. If I did that, I mean, I, 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 I think I've appeared in my films once in voiceover, you know, off camera, I had to ask Bill Lee, what's your best pitch? And he, it worked if you heard the question, which we never put in. And yes. so uh, he tells a very funny story in baseball about that. But, you know, it's not about me. All right. So that, that was the war in 2007. Uh, in between that and the Vietnam War a decade later, just to keep people, uh, I think it's just so amazing that how prolific you've been. National Parks in 2009, Prohibition 2011, the Dust Bowl 2012, Central Park 5 2012 with your daughter and son-in-law, Yosemite Gathering of Spirit in 2013, the address the Dress in 2014, The Roosevelt's in 2014, Jackie Robinson in 2016, Defying the Nazis, The Sharps War in 2016, and then the Vietnam War, which I don't know, have you ever spent more time, I believe 10 years, or more money, I believe 30 million, on any of these projects? Uh, country music, uh, about the same budget, but nowhere near the amount of time. Because because of the shooting for the national parks, it took about 10 years. This was 10 and a half years uh, for the Vietnam War. And uh, unlike after Civil War, I said no more wars. And then by the end of the 90s, I said, look, you know, a thousand veterans of the First World War are dying each day in America. That number is much smaller because the, ta- you know, the pool is much less. Uh, and that something like 40% of graduating high school seniors thought we fought with the Germans against the Russians in the Second World War. Okay. And I said, oh, my God, I got to do this now. Oh. And by the before the ink was dry on, on the war, I said, we're doing Vietnam. And before the ink was dry in Vietnam, I said, we're doing the revolution. And that revolution will be the hardest of all the wars because there ain't no pictures. But I, I, I sort of I gained some confidence about how to do it. And I, you know, I've lived in the, in the uh, 18th century in, in Jefferson and the, the Lewis and Clark, essentially, and um, Shakers for part of the film. So we'll see. Is there anything more satisfying than, I mean, I, I would think with Vietnam, more than any of these earlier films, except maybe baseball, the, the people, not necessarily the exact people in the film, but people who were affected by the subject matter were around to see the film, both the people who had fought and who protested, right? It's so, so great. And um, we were able to marry them together. Um, we met a Vietnamese person who helped us with the production and we gave an interview and he had said that when he was growing up, the protests in the United States against the war, he saw as a sign of our weakness. But after watching our film, he saw it was the sign of our strength. And, you know, as we think about the protest today, uh, we also 
can be reminded about, despite all the things that we've done so badly as a country, as a government, there's a few things that we do right as we let people, at least most people, have their own opinions. Um, and it's good to see people understanding that that's the fundamental mission to protect, say, those in the military who have spoken out in the last few weeks about any kind of invasion of that. That's that's really important to me. Yeah, no, Vietnam was, you know, I lived through it. I had a high draft number. I protested against it in Ann Arbor. And um, I thought going into that, the way I thought going into baseball, it was a film I, I finally knew something about. And it was a daily humiliation for 10 and a half years, how little I knew, how much I had to learn. And uh, share, and it's in many ways the most complicated film and the most challenging, and uh, richly satisfying at how how what the response was. I mean, we just had no conception about how well we would actually had a war room of Democratic and Republican operatives who knew how to you know can put out fires, right? Cobwebs grew on them. I mean, we got trolled from the left and the right and the internet, but it's a normal stuff. But but you know nothing. We were so even-handed and so fair that it was just like, oh, yeah, this happened. And people who were there said, I had no idea. People who were in policy things said, you showed me things I didn't know. And um, uh, and even when we were working on it, we had a sense because we had, you know, like 20 experts. And the experts were telling us stuff that we had no idea about. There was newly declassified or new stuff they were discovering. And they were sharing it with us, but then the other 19 were going, wow, I had no idea. Now, then we switched to them. They had their expertise. So it's not the blind man and the elephant, but we were able to aggregate for a while. I think still now, it's it's about as as comprehensive a one-stop shopping of the wars you're ever going to find. Does it, is it go as deep as scholarship? No, of course not. But it's not going to have the latest on presidential tapes with the latest on declassified Vietnamese military stuff with the latest personal commentary of South Vietnamese, North Vietnamese civilians and soldiers, plus the whole range of Americans, you know, that it, that it has. Well, uh, a year later was the Mayo Clinic, which I know has its personal, for reasons we've talked about, personal connection. And then in September 2019, less than a year ago, as hard as that seems like lifetimes, <laughs> country music, which is outstanding, eight episodes, 16 hours, eight and a half years of work. And I wonder, both with jazz and with country music, were these genres that you would have said you were fa- a fan of prior to doing them? Not no, even- no, no, no. I mean, I, I, I knew a little bit about jazz from my dad, but not much. I worked in a record store in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I sold a lot of jazz, and I sold a lot of country. And Johnny Cash, of course, crossed over. Merle Haggard was a favorite because it was just so meta funny, the Okie from Muskogee. And it was so great to then have Merle as one of the great, he's like Zeus in our film. Everything he says is coming down from heaven. And one of the last interviews he gave was to yeah. us. And he also, we learned, they all smoked marijuana. So it was, it was just, it, it was just such a complicated inside joke, but to learn the extent to which whenever we finish a film, we're always stunned at how contemporary it is. And, and we have to convince people that no, we didn't. I used to have this rap on the road about Vietnam. I said, what if I told you I'd been working for 10 and a half years about a film about mass demonstrations taking place all across the country against the current administration, about a White House in disarray, obsessed with leaks, about a president certain the media is lying about him 
about asymmetrical warfare that confounds the mighty might of the U.S. military, about huge big document drops of stolen classified material that destabilizes the political conversation and accusations that a political campaign reached out to a foreign power at the time of war, uh, to a time of an election to affect that election. All of those were true when we locked the Vietnam film. They were true when we began it in the end of 2006. They were true when we locked it at the end of 2015, a month before the Iowa caucuses, out of which Donald Trump was not supposed to emerge. And every single film, I mean, you look at every episode of country music and assume we decided to start it sometime after the Me Too movement. Began. Absolutely. And there was, it, was, it was completely editorially set before Me Too happened. So it's, it the, reminds you of the power of history. Absolutely. And I guess it, it continues what you've noted is the maybe the one thread that goes through all of your films in the sense of race, because people assume they, there's, and I, I may have been guilty of this myself, that country music, you think Southern whites. Right. You take the, the, the Mount Rushmore of country music, you know, the Carter family, uh, Jimmy Rogers, the two superstars at the beginning, uh, Hank Williams, Bill Monroe, the founder like Charlie Parker of this whole new other foreign bluegrass and Johnny Cash. All of them had African-American mentors. And uh, you go, what? It's all suffused when, and more importantly, this is a two-way street. This is not just that. I mean, when Ray Charles was given permission to make his own album, given creative control of an album for the first time in his professional life, in 62, he comes out with modern sounds in country and Western music. And the number one song of the summer of 62 is I Can't Stop Loving Me you from Don Gibson, a country song. And if you listen to it, this is one of the greatest soul singers of all time, R&B singers, whatever you want to, singing a country song. And it's filled with country songs, Hank Williams and other stuff. And that just tells you that whatever we do to ensilo other human beings or to other genres, they are completely interconnected. Jazz and blues and country and folk and rock and classical and rap. There is no border no passports retire. What? Who resurrects um, uh, Johnny Cash's career at the end? It's you know Rich Rubin and what's he Rick Rubin and what's he what's he his last big hit is Trent Reznor who did the soundtrack for our Vietnam thing. Right. I mean that's Johnny Cash's <laughs> last big hit. And you've said your your mic drop moment is to have Lil Nas X, a black gay man, with a country song that is the biggest hit of. The biggest, the biggest country single ever of all times is by a black gay rapper. That is a mic drop moment. That's, you know, I mean, you know, you can't say it anymore. Only in America, we got too many problems to say that, you know, (laughs) but it's, it, it is a testament to our own myopia that uh, look, what I've said all the way through is that commerce and convenience suggests that we should ensilo these these different musical forms. And you can apply that to almost everything else that we've covered as subject matter. And so you get it. You know, Billboard needs to have a country chart. Billboard needs to have a this chart and a that chart. Okay. But let's remember that there is everybody's listening to everybody else. And if you've got an R&B station, I can guarantee the the listenership is not... 100% African-American. And the same with the country station. It's not. I mean, Rhiannon Giddens is saying, oh man, you didn't get in front of my grandma when Hee Haw was on. Right? I mean, you just go, what? Exactly. So, yeah. 
It's amazing. And I will say I've had the maybe I would say, I guess probably a rare opportunity to see a lot of your work in a short period of time to prep for this. I'd seen it before, but went back and poured over a lot of it. I think that country music in terms of the structure and the editing is as good as anything. I mean, will the circle be unbroken episode, for example, is as good as anything I've ever seen. I I agree, Scott. Thank you. Uh, That's a testament first to Dayton Duncan's extraordinary script. And then uh, the editing of that particular episode, uh, Craig Mellish, who's a longtime uh, editor for us, he's that came in as an intern a thousand years ago and is now one of our senior editors. It's it's a spectacular story, and um, yeah, I, I I love it. It's also the longest. I was told by the head of programming at PBS. I said, "Look, I got I got them all under two hours, but this one's like two twenty. And she goes, "Not going to happen this time, Ken. Different world. Not going to happen." And I said, "Well, just at least look at it." So she were in my barn. We had fifty people looking, and she came up and said, "I agree. It's your best one. It's the <laughs> fastest one." Oh, you know, it's just like our our shortest episode in Vietnam is ninety minutes, uh, un, uh, well under ninety minutes, and it's the sixth episode about the Tet Offensive. It feels like the longest. Because nobody wants to be inside a Tet, and we make you live inside of Tet. And um, it's a conscious and deliberate. But I said, there's no way we're doing this for two hours. This is going to be one of the four 90s out of the, with the six other two hours for Vietnam. It's, it's complicated, but it's, 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 you know, I'm glad you saw that. that I agree that, that not only can country music hold its own against any of them, the whole thing in its totality. Yes. The story is so riveting and so, you know, dense that lots of folks in Nashville were saying, I didn't know that. But I think that particularly that episode is a masterpiece following one song all the way through uh, and covering as much ground as it does, um, as, as, as nimbly as I think it does. Thank you. Thank you for that. Of course. Well, I hope we can wrap up with one minute of what we call rapid fire, just the one sentence of what comes to your mind as, as much as that's possible. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for, uh, right. I have a brief nine part answer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, here we go. Is there such a thing as objective truth? No. Oh, yes. Uh, God knows. And she's not telling. <laughs> Are you a filmmaker who focuses on history or a historian who focuses on films? I think we've filmmaker that focuses on history. Yeah. Will we see another Ken Burns feature length doc or is it going to be docu-series? I think uh, most of the films that are coming out will be at least two parts, if not three, and series. But I, I you know, there's stuff that could easily be uh, a, a one-off that could essentially conceivably have a, a three theatrical before the PBS broadcast. Will we ever see a non-documentary narrative film from Ken Burns? It's all, I never say never. Uh, I've all, people are always testing me, you know, Jack Johnson's, uh, the latest candidate, but Jackie Robinson before that was a possibility. I love my day job. So uh, I'd have to make some room and there's very little room. If say Netflix came to you tomorrow and offered you an obscene amount of money to come work exclusively for them, would you do that? No. Obscene amount of money is almost redundant. I'm comfortable. I I love PBS. I mean, there's some you know scenario where the, the back catalog goes to some, but I'm I I want to release everything on PBS. I believe in what it stands for. PBS is the public broadcasting service, not system service. <laughs> 
And I hitched my wagon to that star long ago. I'm very proud that they, they would have me. And I, I count it as one of the great blessings of my life that I'm part of that family. Have you ever considered either before or since the pandemic making a film about the Spanish flu or the current pandemic? There was a, a film for um, uh, the American experience, I believe, on the Spanish uh, flu. Uh, we need 20, 25, 30 years out. So God willing, yes. I hope that I do have a chance to do something on uh, on Trump or do something on uh, the Black Lives Matter or do something on uh, coronavirus. But I'm planned out. I, I you know, I, I've got all the films going through 2030. So yes. it's, yeah, I'm pretty busy. <laughs> Should baseball players who use steroids be allowed into the Hall of Fame? Yeah, you know what? It's it's going to be on a proportional basis. Uh, there's no asterisk next to the winners of the 1919 World Series. Uh, it'll list the Cincinnati Red Stockings. We all know what happened. The Chicago uh, White Sox, now called the Black Sox, threw the series because gangsters offered the money to do that. There's no asterisk. It's why there's storytellers around, and it's why we did the 10th inning to sort of comment on it. But I guess an, a vague way of answering is that I can't remember how many home runs Barry Bonds have, but I'll never forget that Hank Aaron has 755. Mm -hmm. What's the story? You could see these are all over the place, but what's the story behind the Ken Burns bowl cut? Oh, well, this one is now I'm clearly trying out for a uh, geriatric Bee Gees tribute band uh, (laughs) because I've been without a haircut. I just had hair down from my hippie days in Ann Arbor down to my waist. And when I got out of college, uh, I had it cut to kind of the the John Paul George Ringo thing that seemed at least, you know, not losing everything. And it's just stayed. And in fact, I I care so little about it. And people bring it up so much that I only really concentrate when it's when it's there. It's just, you know, I'm a triple Leo, if that means anything in astrology, which apparently means that my main is is a large part of it and may explain why the hair is there. But, you know, I can't get rid of it now. I mean, it's... It, well, I heard you have the same barber for all these years. So right? this gorgeous young woman cut my hair when I was whatever I was, 21. And uh, she's long since retired. I had to go to her house. It's an hour and a half away. And uh, I haven't seen her, of course, since before the yeah. the the stuff, which is why you know I'm I'm really rocking a new do now because it's kind of <laughs> pushing back and and it's That's like cool. it's That's not good. even a mullet anymore, right? And I'm since okay. I'm alone, I'm not going to trust my kids to cut my hair. <laughs> I trust my dog here to do it. Last few, uh, you apparently became very close with President Obama during his presidency. Can we expect one day a Ken Burns doc about President Obama? I sure hope so. Yeah. No, I, 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 um, I'm not sure saying we became incredibly close. Uh, there's a mutual respect and, and that of course complicates doing uh, a film about him because the film has to be dispassionate and, and critical. And, um, uh, you know, I hope that I'll be, uh, I'll be doing that. I think I can do a good job. Is it fair to assume you are less interested in doing a, a film about Donald Trump? No, I think he'd be a really important one. I mean, I hope that we can look back and say we dodged this bullet. Uh, this is the greatest threat in the history of our republic, is his administration. It's him. Ever, it's not even his administration. Yeah, it's, it's, him. Yeah, it's him. Ever going to see a Ken Burns doc that has nothing to do with America? Well, we're actually one of the eight projects that I'm working on, including Hemingway and uh, Muhammad Ali and um, 
Benjamin Franklin and the U.S. and the Holocaust and the American Revolution and LBJ and the Great Society and the history of the buffalo is one uh, that my daughter and son-in-law and I are making on Leonardo da Vinci. So there's your stop the presses thing. The first, That's the right. first non-American topic that we've done. But I don't see that as a as a branching out. I'm I they may, but I'm too parochial and provincial to leave this. Uh, well, Churchill came up at one point, right? Yeah, Churchill. Tr- we talked about it, and the re- I can get away with that, Scott, because you know in Jewish law, his mom is American, so he's an American <laughs> actually. Sort of facetiously, but uh, why do you hate reality TV? I hate it because it's not reality. It's just not reality. Uh, I don't, you know, reality is what I'm looking at right now at my window, this beautiful slate spring in Walpole, New Hampshire. You don't eat bugs in front of millions of people (laughs) in reality, and you don't propose to anyone else in reality. So, you know, all of this is nonfiction television of a variety of degrees of dreck and and really excellent stuff. I mean, we've been in a golden age of documentaries for 35 years at least, and it shows no sign of abatement. And the word is too small. Even in the 85, Vincent Gamby of the Times wrote a piece about how it's impossible. How can you have Streetwise, which is almost acted in Seattle and Errol Morris's thin blue line and my Huey Long and uh, what uh, Ross McElwee's Sherman's March, which is self-referential and whatever the uh, Fred Wiseman film all under documentary. We got to think of a better name. I don't think hate is the word in this case, but why you, you raised some concerns about something that maybe the most viewed thing of the Corona era the, one of the most viewed things, The Last Dance. What's it's it's really taken out of context. What I said was I was asked by a reporter about whether I could do that. And I, I'm not permitted in PBS. I can't have a producer of my film be the subject of my film. It just doesn't happen. Right. I mean, we've had right. to have people recuse themselves because they knew somebody that knew somebody that was involved in the organization we were covering. So we're, we just got a church and state line. And I talked to the filmmaker because when it got out, it just multiplied like kudzu when in fact, I just said, look, I haven't seen your film. I still haven't seen your film. I don't have any time to see the films, but um, I'm sure it's good. And I'm so sorry that you, I, because apparently he was a, a big admirer of mine. And so here I was. I said, look, I've got no rules. PBS has rules and I stick by them with regard to funders, with regard to production teams. And so I couldn't have done that. What I told them was I said, that's not the way we roll. And you've got to wonder when the rubber hits the road, if there's in any way a gulp or a look or a sigh that says, I don't want that in there. I don't know that it happened or it didn't happen, but I just can't even put myself in, in harm's way. I just released on our website, Unum, a clip from um, our film, The Statue of Liberty from 1985. And it's James Baldwin saying, the Statue of Liberty is a bitter joke to black people, meaning absolutely nothing to us. And, you know, I remember showing it to the underwriter and them going like this. And I go, "Uh oh, here comes the fight. And then I heard the ad guy say to them, no, it's a puff piece if it doesn't have this. And I just thought, okay, this is the way, you know, if you think it's it's just going to float away without anchored by Baldwin, maybe that's true, maybe it's not true. But, it, you know, nobody, I didn't have to have an awkward moment and I've right. avoided that awkward moment. And I Almost never want to have a conversation with you where I'm apologizing because somebody said you shouldn't do this, right? <laughs> Almost done here. Uh, who's the greatest living documentary filmmaker not named Ken Burns? 
Jeez, that's so hard. I think the thing that came to mind is my dear friend, uh, Werner Herzog. He's so different than me. He once described it on a panel. He said, I'm after an ecstatic truth. My friend Ken is after an emotional truth. And there's a truth to, to what he said. I love what he does. I love his attitude about it. I love his commitment, his passion, his bravery, uh, all of the things. And here's a guy who spent the first, you know, you know, few decades just doing feature films. So, right. If you had to decide today, will, would you attend this year's Telluride Film Festival, given all that's going on? I know I get to see you there every year. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I can't. I don't want to turn this beautiful town that I love and I've gone to for 30 straight years, 31 overall. I premiered Huey Long there and then Civil War and I've never not gone. It's incredibly painful not to go there. Uh, But I don't want to turn Telluride into Manhattan when it was a a hotspot. Right. Last two. Who will win in November? Uh, Joe Biden. Good. And uh, last question. I have an answer that I hope you'll give, but... uh, Will you ever retire? And if you were to retire, what would you do? Well, uh, no. I, I wrote a poem uh, this year and released it in the Atlantic, published it about COVID, about my love for my youngest daughter, and about nature, about all the threats. It's, I didn't know I had it in me. And I take pictures all the time, still photographs. So I've never, that's never left me. But I, I love my job. I, got, I feel like I've got the best job in the country, and it educates all of my parts all the time. And uh, I can't imagine not doing what I'm doing for as long as I can do it. Well, you do it as well as anyone ever has, and I so appreciate you doing this. I can't tell you how much uh, I've been looking forward to it, and thank you for more than exceeding expectations. It's oh, good. I hope so. Special. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It was, yeah. a really, it was a really great conversation to have. You know, my kids have come to the doorway and shot daggers at me, even though I warned them. I said, this is going to be a while. I can't feed you or do this. <laughs> and I'm just like, I ignored them and they were suddenly realized, oh, this is serious. Well, please tell them I appreciate their loaning you and, uh, and stay safe. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. You too, Scott. Great to talk with you. Take right. care. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.